Welcome to the Real Estate Investor Podcast. I'm your host, Gary Lipsky of Break of Day Capital. I talk to leading experts to discuss a wide range of subjects to educate investors on best-in-class practices to build legacy wealth and positively impact communities. Let's jump in. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Real Estate Investor Podcast. I'm your host, Gary Lipsky with Break of Day Capital. Be sure to join our Facebook group, Asset Management Mastery, where we have a great community of thousands of like-minded individuals sharing resources and best practices. Choosing the right insurance coverage for multifamily properties isn't that complicated, if you know who to talk to. At the Garzella Group, we're uniquely qualified to help you navigate the range of policy choices you have, and we're committed to saving you 30% in the process. We do intensive market research and have nationwide relationships, so we can find coverage other insurance brokers simply can't. We should talk. Go to quotenow.biz, and we'll start the conversation. My guest today is Jay Parsons, who serves as the Senior VP and Chief Economist for RealPage. He's a frequent author and speaker on topics affecting multifamily apartments and single-family rentals and has been cited in the Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg, the Financial Times, and the New York Times. Thanks for joining us, Jay. Can you start by telling the listeners a little bit more about yourself and what you do? Sure. So as you said, I get to have the honor of serving as the Chief Economist RealPage and Um, Our company is a a software provider to the rental housing space. And a lot of what I get to do is look at all the data that runs through our systems and aggregate. So kind of like ADP, well, payroll information they get, we're able to do the same thing on the, uh, on the rental housing side. So it's a, it's a lot of fun. Well, I love that. I I really love the content that you put out really, really informative. Let's, so let's jump in. I know it's funny. Every, every article you read is a little bit different on what they say out there. I've heard anywhere from 4 million housing units short in the U.S. to 5 million, to more than that. Curious, what data are you seeing on how many units are were short in the U.S.? Yeah, that's, that's a big question. There's a lot of different ways to calculate that. We're definitely short, and I think the number is in the millions. But what the exact number is depends on how you define uh, the shortage. And I think a lot of times when you see these low estimates, it's what people, the mistake people make is they're using today's elevated price points and, and basically pricing out everybody who can't afford those and kind of saying, hey, well, they can't afford it, therefore they don't need it. Well, that's not exactly how it works. Like if you can't afford to buy food, that doesn't mean you don't need food. And the same thing is true with housing. And so I think it's north of 5 million units. With that being said, we need housing of all types, single family for sale. We need single family for rent. We need multifamily for rent. Maybe, maybe even some multifamily for sale. It's a little trickier in most spots, but and at all price points. But uh, the biggest deficit is undoubtedly at the low income side. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's where we typically buy value add multifamily. They don't make anything new, so we look to right. uh, improve communities and fix it up and make it great for someone else that can't afford the luxury apartments that they're building elsewhere. You know. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I mentioned looking at it, but to your point, it's also the middle incomes. You know, there's most new construction today is catering to households that have six figure incomes, uh, usually with roommates. And but the challenge, though, is that we don't build for the middle class or for that matter, we have the LIHTC tax credits, but that's a pretty limited program at the low end of the market. So it's a real need. Yeah. They're certainly building a ton in Nashville, Dallas, Austin, Phoenix. Yeah. Are you concerned about any of the markets that are overbuilding? 
Yeah, no, there is a lot. I mean, we're building about a million units right now, and 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 I'm smiling here because I, I think it's a good thing in the long run. Now, that being said, there's going to be some short-term challenges. I don't like the word overbuilding or oversupply because I think that's I think that's kind of misstating the the issue, which is it's there's going to be demand for these units. Long term, we need them. The challenges are always the short. Can we absorb this much supply in the short period of time which they're being delivered? And you know, honestly, I I don't think we can. I think there may be a couple of years here, 23 and first half, maybe all of 24, where there's going to be a lot of demand, but there'll be even more supply. And so, you know, especially I think it's going to be the case in, you mentioned like in Nashville and not even necessarily all of Nashville, but especially in, you know, the core part of Nashville. And we're going to see this all over the country. And so I really describe the supply issues as number one, short term, but number two, I think that, and I say short term, I mean like you want two years. And then number two, I think it's going to be more pockets as opposed to a macro story. There's going to be challenges in many parts of the country, but it's generally going to be limited to certain submarkets. Yeah, that, that's a really good point. You know, <laughs> Phoenix is so huge. They're building on every outskirt of, yeah. of the city. It's insane. And rent can be the same from one end of the, of the MSA to the other end of the MSA. And that's a, a 40 mile difference. So. Yeah. So you're not competing for the same renters, right? From one side to the next. Now, to your point, though, it's like if I'm operating apartments right now on the west, far west side of Phoenix, like, you know, it's going to get absolutely inundated with supply. It'll be a short term challenge. But uh, again, that's that's not necessarily competing for the same folks in the far east side of the metro area. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. What are you seeing as far as rent growth? Now, obviously, Phoenix has actually. I mean, they had tremendous, tremendous rent growth, but now you're seeing a little bit of negative rent growth short term. But do you have some favorite cities, second half of 2023 or 2024, that that you really like as far as rent growth? Yeah, Phoenix has been challenged. Uh, we see that one slightly negative. It's not falling off the cliff. It doesn't look like 2009 timeframe, but it's, uh, you know, it's rents are down there about 3%. Also seeing slight rent cuts, places like Las Vegas and Sacramento and even Austin. But places that we, uh, you know, nationally, I think what we're really seeing is we've, this, the story has shifted from rising tide boosts all shifts. Everybody's doing great, regardless of your investment strategy, regardless of your operating strategy. Now it's a high variability story. There's pockets where it's really challenged and there's pockets where it's still really hot. So, you know, I, I mentioned like Austin's cooled off, but, you know, Dallas is still really strong. You know, in Florida, we've seen Tampa's cooled off, but South Florida, Southeast Florida, especially Miami, is still a very, very strong market. And the other area I mentioned is the, we're seeing a lot of strength right now in the Midwest. You know, the Midwest are kind of a slow and steady market. So this is the, we're in that point in the cycle where it's like the tortoise beats the hare. The hare is a little tired. Now the tortoise is up front. So we're seeing, you know, places like Columbus and Indianapolis, uh, Cincinnati, and I, I could go on even parts of Chicago that have that in Cleveland and Milwaukee go on the list. You know, a lot of these markets are doing much better in the national rankings than they typically would. Yeah, it's it's definitely uh, cyclical, and you know, I, people always ask me, you know, what are the best markets to invest? I'm like, well, I you know, I'm in LA. I don't I don't invest here, but I have friends that invest here and do really really well in a. You know, it's, it's not a landlord friendly state. It, you've got a lot of, you know, politics and whatnot, but, you know, there's a thesis for every area, depending on how you underwrite. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and I, I fully agree. And, and, you know, I, it's part of me doesn't like even answering the question about, you know, markets we don't like, because truthfully, you, know, you could be successful anywhere with the right strategy. I think certain places, especially Southern California, are just a lot harder to be successful. <laughs> yeah. 
but yeah, tr tremendous appreciation and the occupancy. There's just such a lack of of units here in Southern California that yeah. things get moved up. It's, it's never been a demand issue for housing in California. It's there's other things that are worrying about. But you know, like you said, though, people have been successful there, and especially. You know, I think that, you know, we'll see more and more opportunities for, you know, small and regional players to be more and more successful as larger investors start to diversify outside of coastal markets like California. So at the time of this recording, the Fed raised rates 25 bips last week. What do you do you have any uh, obviously you don't have crystal ball, but what, are you thinking another 25 bips? And let's you know, before we start, you know, cutting rates, maybe in 2024, what are you thinking well, like you said, I mean, I don't have a crystal ball. And I think, you know, we found that, you know, economists have a pretty horrible track record at predicting <laughs> prices of oil and, and and also interest rates. So I try to avoid those two things. Now, you know, that being said, you know, I, I, I if, if I'm pushed into a corner, I'm in the camp that thinks that, you know, I think the Fed will likely hold off for a while and see what's going on. There's already a lot of distress, obviously. Starting, I say a lot. There's signs of distress that are starting to show up in the banking sector, you know, given what's going on with deposits and whatnot, there's signs with commercial real estate, especially office, we have multifamily where you have short-term uh, debt that's uh, that's maturing and it's going to get refinanced much higher rates and that's going to have a serious impact on the market. And there's, you know, some concerns about obviously the, the job market, although the numbers continue to way outperform everyone's expectations for the gazillionth year in a row. So, you know, I think my guess is that the Fed's probably going to hold off for a while and and then maybe by next year we start to see rates coming down again. <laughs> yeah, it's it's you know I read I read a lot of data, a lot of articles out there and it's you know it, it can range from, you know, zero, you know, rate decreases next year to 200 bit, you know, decreases next year. So it's crazy. It certainly runs a gamut, but uh, I definitely feel that yeah. um, rates will be coming down you know, uh, quite significantly next year uh, uh, over time, you know, so it'll be interesting. <laughs> yeah, I think they'll be cautious about not doing it too quickly. But but I do, you know, I, I think they're going to see, especially there's so much political pressure right now on mortgage rates, which obviously have been tied to what the Fed's doing with the base rate. And so my guess is eventually that starts to put some pressure on the Fed to uh, to push down rates a little bit. I mean, you know, our view of the kind of the national view of how we think about the economy is so often tied tied to mortgage rates, and and we're a homeownership centric society, and so I think that could end up being a a driver in, in where rates go. Yeah, what they're doing in in California, and I mean, I don't know the the exact law, but there's a, a tax that they and they just recently put in for if you buy a home five million dollars or more. Yeah. And then I think there's another level. So they're trying to, you know, balance it out, uh, you know, as much as they can. But uh, yeah, it'll, it'll be, they're going to have to come up with some other long-term real solutions, which they've never really been successful at. But if they're trying to increase home ownership for in the future, they're going to they're gonna have to come up with some, some other programs. Well, and, and that transfer tax is a big deal for multifamily owners as well, of course. And I think that's one reason why you're going to have less interest in places like Los Angeles and Chicago is now considering a big increase in its transfer tax because, you know, immediately those assets become less liquid, which ends the policy ends up being less productive because there's fewer sales transactions that are occurring. So right. we'll see. Rent control. Yeah. That's, you know, that's really had a negative effect on what they're trying to, trying to create. And you'll, you'll see a lot of people stay in apartments that can afford a lot more staying at 10, 15, 20 years because they, they don't want to move and, and I have to pay two, three times the rent. Right. 
No, it, it's a it's a big challenge. I mean, you know, untargeted rent controls, you know, ultimately have uh, are tremendous benefit to a lot of upper income households who don't need the benefit. And that's been one of the biggest challenges. I'm a big supporter of very what I would call targeted rent control, which is essentially true affordable housing, like the LIHTC program or Section 8 vouchers, things like this that get aid directly to those who need them and without the negative side effects of you know traditional rent controls. Yeah. And you're starting to see, um, you're talking to some lenders that you know, Fannie and Freddie are really pushing more and more programs down that route to, to, to have more affordable housing for people. Yeah. Yeah. No, they've been really, Fannie and Freddie have obviously been, you know, they're, they're more and more structured around trying to incentivize more affordable housing. And, you know, affordable is a big, you know, it can mean a lot of different things. You know, you have true affordable housing associated with some sort of subsidy program, but you also have, you know, the NOAA stuff, the naturally occurring affordable housing. And so if you can keep, you know, market rate units, you know, at lower rents, and you could subsidize that. Like, for, I'll give you one example. There's a proposal in Congress right now that uh, Senator Wyden out of Oregon put to put out called the Middle Income Housing Tax Credit, and it would help number one new construction at the middle tier rents. But the other thing it would really help out with is maybe doing renovations and value adds, where instead of having to raise the rent twenty percent, thirty percent to pay for all the capex you're putting in, maybe having a subsidy associated that would keep the rent lower, but still be able to do the renovations that otherwise you can't afford to do ultimately need. So it could be a win-win. And can you explain NOAA for our listeners that don't, I've never heard of that before? Yeah, NOAA is naturally occurring affordable housing. So it's basically, if you imagine like all the stuff they're building today, we talked about it being, you know, class A luxury apartments catering to six-figure income households. Well, today's new supply ends up being the affordable housing, the naturally occurring affordable housing of decades in the future. And so if you think about properties built in like the 70s, for example, or even the early 80s, you know, these properties are, are more affordable today, right? And so we're talking about NOAA, it's just kind of aging in and becoming, you know, it's the rents are, are naturally cheaper because of the, the age and the condition of the property. Excellent. Are there, has there been any data points that have come out recently that you're that really surprised or really focused on? Oh, that's a good question. I'll start with the focused on. I think the big thing we're looking at this year are turnover or retention rates of residents. We've seen even even in non-rent controlled markets, there's been very little turnover, resident turnover these last couple of years. You know, first you had COVID, so people couldn't move or didn't want to move given the pandemic. And then you had the record low vacancy rates across, you know, with the places that did have openings were getting more expensive in the way that, than just staying put and renewing their lease. And so now we're getting to a point where there's more supply there's, and there's more vacancy. And, and I think that's going to lead toward, you know, more turnover again this year. So I think property managers are very focused on this and trying to protect the back door the best they can. So I, I think that's going to be a key metric to watch this year. In terms of surprises, you know, I, for the most part, I think the market's performing kind of as we expected, except the biggest surprises are really on the expense side. You know, you have insurance costs have gone through the roof, you know, especially in Florida and Texas, Southern California, but really all across the country. In some cases, you know, insurance premiums could be double what they were two years ago. So I think that's been a, a surprise. And I'm also surprised that payrolls continue to go up as much as they have. You know, payroll was an issue when COVID hit. And I would not have predicted that three years after COVID, we'd still be wrestling with staffing shortages, especially on site for leasing and maintenance teams, you know, and other things around the expense side as well, I mean, taxes, utilities, et cetera. I think, in, and then of course you have the cost of debt, of course, debt, debt service coverage going up, uh, you know, your mortgage that you pay if you're on a floating rate. So expenses, I think, are really the big surprise this year. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned turnover earlier. And and so 
before we weren't having to deal with that as much turnover. Now you've got turnover, you've got turnover as far as units, but also turnover in staff. And then yep. again, when you add in insurance and, and all these other other uh, costs associated with uh, running an apartment building, it's been uh, in- insane. You've got to yeah. really make sure your asset management is, is super tight and maybe introduce a couple other income streams of income, uh, whether it's package lockers or preferred parking or whatever, to try to keep up with those expenses. Yeah. And also there's a big focus in the industry right now around just operating more efficiently and, you know, centralization, you know, using using technology allows for more automation of services for renters so that, I mean, it started off things like, you know, paying your rent online, but now, you know, a lot of like the resident service and resident care and even leasing can occur kind of sight unseen that reduces costs. So there's a big focus on, you know, not only ancillary revenue, but also, you know, trying to drive down expenses too. Yeah. Really hard for property management companies to do that. They're typically the ones that we've dealt with are so archaic, but uh, yeah, the get, getting them to, to really uh, embrace technology has been a struggle, but uh, it could pay. Well, you start with, I'm amazed how many, how many companies still don't allow online rent payments. I mean, this is, I mean, stuff like that is a no brainer because number one, the residents like it. Number two, you're not processing rent checks. Number three, you're going to uh, you know deal with a lot of kind of the, that, you know, check frauds and things like this, that, that would occur and reduce a lot of your risk. And so, I mean, I would, I tell, I mean, to me, it's, you know, I'm not trying to pitch anything here, but I just think of all things you can do, that's the easiest to kind of recover some lost revenue and also uh, reduce some expense and make your yep. residents happier. Yep. A lot of time saving, cost savings to be had, but you know, they're slow adopters, you know, low, yep. low margin, thankless job. So uh, I get it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it's, I hear the same things. And ultimately I think, you know, you can't just spend money to make money in every single way, but there's certainly things that just are sensible ways to operate more efficiently that are, um, you know, should be no brainers. Yeah. Anything else that you see on the horizon that's going to, you know, people talk about, you know, we're still waiting for another drop in value on, on, you know, home values and for multifamily. I don't see it coming. You know, maybe, you know, some markets will take a little bit more dip, but, you know, I see things starting to pick up soon in, you know, second half of 2023 and certainly in 2024. What, what are you seeing? Yeah, I think the big question right now is is really tied to, you know, how much distress is going to be in the market. And when I say distress, like it's, you know, as you know, it's really tied to really those who bought at peak values and didn't have the run up in, in revenue the past pre couple of years and then just inherited the expenses that are now above what they pro forma. Then they have floating rate debt that's going to mature late this year in the next year and at the higher rate. And so how much of that gets worked out behind the scenes with preferred equity and MES, uh, how much of that ends up on the market? Uh, I think there's a lot of wait and see capital out there. Ultimately, there's still quite a bit of dry powder. There's a lot of funds that have been raised and need to be deployed. And people still like multifamily as well as industrial relative to other options. So I don't think values will, I think they have to adjust somewhat because the cost of debt is so much higher, obviously. But I, it's hard to see a scenario, you know, barring a big shock that's not yet occurred or immediately visible where values can significantly depreciate. Yeah, they talk about, you know, the wave of, of loans that are coming due and certainly people under, you know, under siege because of the debt. But, you know, sellers haven't been as desperate when they're looking to sell as of now. We'll see how yeah. how it plays out. But uh, they've been holding, their, holding out for... 
for a buyer to to pay more than than we've been willing to pay. So it's it's it's, it's certainly interesting times. Jay, I appreciate you coming on the show and sharing your your knowledge. Where can listeners find out more about you and, and RealPage? Well, sure. And, and again, thanks for having me on. You can We put out a lot of content at realpage.com slash analytics. There's a blog there with a lot of details. And also I post, uh, as you alluded to, uh, on LinkedIn quite frequently. So you can see a lot of our content there as well under my name. Yeah, listeners, definitely check it out. A lot of great information. Highly recommend it. Thanks so much again, Jay, for coming on. I'll be back next week with another informative episode on the Real Estate Investor Podcast. To all of our listeners, thanks for joining us. And if you like this episode, please head over to iTunes or Stitcher and like, subscribe, and leave a review as it will help us reach more people. And if you'd like to learn more about what we do at Break of Day Capital, head over to our website at breakofdaycapital.com and sign up for our newsletter and fill out our investor application. We'll talk to you next week.